Make the world a better place. 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 Welcome to Better Place Project. I am Steve Norris, and I'm with my incredibly talented and amazing daughter, Erin. Hi, Erin. Hey. How are we doing today? I am pretty good. How about yourself? Not too shabby. We want to, before we get started today, we've got an amazing show. But before we get into that, we wanted to show or throw out a couple of quick shouts to a few businesses that we love. Number one is a company out of Australia. It's Nourished by Julie. Julie offers online cooking classes that are incredible. I've taken like three of them so far, and Aaron knows I'm actually pretty good on a grill, but in the kitchen, I'm pretty horrible. So I've signed up for these classes, and again, She's out of Australia. She's not only an amazing chef who's cooked for clients all over the world, but she's also a trained nutritionist as well. So she's really into healthy cooking. And this last class we did last weekend was on Indian curry food. And I love Indian food. I love naan. And never in a thousand years did I think I'd be able to actually make it. And with Julie's help, uh, the preparation for these classes is awesome. She sends you detailed sheets on what ingredients to get. Uh, she sends a little video on how to prep, as she did for, for our Indian class. And then the classes are done via Zoom. And so you're there online with her as she walks you through how to chop each vegetable, how to add all the ingredients, literally preheating your stove. You can ask questions online. It's awesome. To find her, go to nourishedbyjulie.com. Dot AU. Don't forget the AU part because, again, she's in Australia. And what's cool is they do the classes in Australia on a Saturday morning. So for you listeners here in America, that means it's Friday afternoon for us um, between like 3 and 6 o'clock p.m., um, depending on where you are in the country. So what's cool at the end of the week, you get to learn how to cook this amazing meal and then sit down and have this meal with a glass of wine on a Friday night. So go to nourishedbyjulie.com.au or you'll find her on Instagram at nourishedbyjulie, Facebook, everywhere social media exists. Now, Aaron is going to give a shout out to a local wine bar and bistro right here in Southern California. Aaron. Yeah, so a business we love is called Barnoa Wine Bar. It's a wine bar located in Talega in South Orange County. It's a wine bar and restaurant that offers unique wines from all around the world. Also, their food is to die for. I'm a big fan of their salmon with the blackened and remoulade sauces, and it's served with Israeli couscous and asparagus, spinach, and cherry tomatoes, and it's so good. Yes, I can vouch for this place as well. As a matter of fact, uh, it's fresh in our minds because we celebrated my birthday dinner there last night. They have uh, an incredible outdoor patio, live music on the weekends, an acoustic guitar player. Another of my favorites on the menu is the flat iron steak. Mm -hmm. It's incredible, but obviously you're getting incredible wines there as well from all over the world. So Barnoa Wine Bar. You'll find them on Instagram, Facebook, and what was the website? And their Bar- website is barnoawinebar.com. There you go. All right, enough business. Today's show, I'm excited, Aaron. Yeah, um, I am too. Our conversation uh, today is with Dr. David Vaughn, who this guy was such an inspiration. Uh, tell us a little bit about him, Aaron. All right, so we chatted with Dr. David Vaughn and his daughter, Dee Dee. Dr. David Vaughn has held positions in aquaculture research and development for over 45 years. He founded and developed Aura Oceans, Reefs, and Aquariums, Inc., a large marine ornamental production facility, and has worked with Philippe Cousteau and 
Earth Echo International on coral reef restoration initiatives. He started the Coral Reef Restoration Program at Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida Keys, where he focused on developing the new technology of microfragmentation. In 2017, the odysseyonline.com listed Dr. Vaughn as one of eight people that are making the world a better place. Dr. Vaughn is currently helping people globally in this process of reef restoration as the founder of plantamillioncorals.org. Yeah, let me just throw this out there, you guys. After talking to David Vaughn, and you're, I think you're going to agree with me after you hear this conversation, Dr. Vaughn is a badass. Wouldn't you agree, Aaron? He really is. Uh, something I really liked about talking with him is, you know, even though he's an expert in his field and he's really, really intellectual, he broke the concepts down in a really simple way that's easy for anyone to understand. He Which was necessary of... for us. Clearly, yeah. I think he said, uh, after talking to, to me, he said, you know what, with this uh, Norris guy, I'm going to have to really dumb this down. Uh, so, and he does, which I agree. Yeah. It so much more uh, interesting and, and fun. And one of the things you guys are going to hear about He's going to, I'm sorry, Aaron, I interrupted you, um, but uh, he's going to talk about his Eureka mistake, which I'm not going to, I'm going to let him tell you the story because he's so good at telling the story, but so many great inventions and discoveries in science all come about by very intelligent, bright people like Dr. Vaughn doing research in the lab, trying different things, and sometimes just stumbling across something that actually works. And this is an incredible, incredible story. This guy's a legend in the marine biology field. So we are so excited to introduce you to Dr. David Vaughn and his daughter, Dee Dee. Make the world. Good afternoon, Dr. Vaughn. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, awesome to have you as well. And we are also blessed with your daughter, Dee Dee, as well. Hello, Dee Dee. Yeah. Hello. How are you? Fantastic. And we have Aaron here, my co-host. Hi, Aaron. <laughs> yep. I'm excited. Yes, we could not be more excited to have you here, Dr. Vaughn, when Aaron and I were looking for guests to have on this show that where we really wanted to focus on finding people around the world that truly are making the world a better place. And when we came across your story, first of all, I was familiar with you from, I want to say a year and a half to two years ago, I stumbled across your TED Talk. And I happened to be a scuba diver. So that was like really cool for me to hear about the Eureka mistake which I had not heard about. And when you and I talked or exchanged some emails a few weeks back, I had uh, mentioned to you that I scuba dived the Great Barrier Reef last year. And it was both amazing on one dive when we were swimming, you know, diving over a uh, beautiful reef, healthy, and then would go to the next reef that was completely bleached out and almost dead it was just heartbreaking. So to see firsthand, and we were at the outer reef as well, the damage was just really, really heartbreaking. And then to learn about some of the work that you've been doing is just amazing and inspiring. So before we build up to the Eureka moment, which I think is one of the coolest things ever, can we go back to your childhood and what got you into your love of diving? And I understand you, like me, were a Jacques Cousteau fan. So can you start from the very beginning and tell us what hooked you? What was it? Well, I can't uh, remember anything specific, but to know that at an early age of 11, I fell in love with the silent world of Jacques Cousteau and, and the specials. And um, literally, when other people at that age were writing book reports on World War II fighter pilots or 
football heroes. I was writing book reports on Jacques Cousteau and Frederick Damas, the engineer who helped him develop the Aqualon and book reports on sharks and corals and reefs. And I was pretty much an outlier uh, among oh, wow. young, young teenagers, not even teenager yet. And my parents actually were very thoughtful that they, I said, I wanted to learn how to scuba dive. Now at 11, back in the 1960s, they did not teach people 11 years old, uh, let alone many people how to scuba dive. So my parents thought Seriously. that it would be a passing phase and a few years would go by and I'd be on to something else until one day they came down into my basement and I had gathered up all of my lead army and uh, Indian figurines. At the time, there was not plastic. And I was melting them all down to make scuba weights for my weight belt. And they said, oh boy, he's hooked. Maybe we better try to take him to a few scuba places and they will tell him that he's too young. And so they took me to one or two and I said, let's go to another one. And the guy there was six foot, probably eight, and weighed about 300 pounds. And he, he said to my parents, I, I, I'll take care of this. He said, for you to get in my class, you'd have to get in the water with me right now and be able to handle what I can throw out at you. So I said, okay. So I got in the water. He set up a tank, put a tank there. He said, do you know how to put that together? And I said, I sure do. And I put it on weighing probably only uh, 80 pounds. Um, wow. up a 75 pound tank and putting it on my back like this. And I said, I'm ready. And he went in and just like anybody going through scuba, they, they put you to a final test of taking your mask off, see if you can put it back on, turning your air off, you know, taking your tank off, all those types of things. And he started doing that with me at 80 pounds and literally was spinning me around in the air in the water column. <laughs> and I kept putting my mask back on, kept turning it off. Finally, he gets back up. And I said, is that all you got? <laughs> he said, okay, you're in. And my parents were, oh. And I became a certified diver uh, at age 13. And I was wow. very blessed that my uh, father worked for a university and was the development officer. And his job was to try and raise some funds for the new West Indies Marine Lab in St. Croix. And he was approached by the marine biology professors to raise a certain amount of money. And he said, if I raise this money, would you take my son on your first expedition? And they said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking that he couldn't raise the money. Well, he raised the money for not only the expedition, but the laboratory. And so I had wow. to do at age 13, accompany a university to the first expedition to St. Croix to, to look around the island, to find the perfect spot to have the next new West Indies Laboratory. And my job at that time was to literally bring with me a prospector's hammer and chisel. And believe it or not, my job was to hack off live pieces of coral and put them in formalin jars to send back to the university biology department to analyze and record. And if wow. Imagine, if I, if I could it? interrupt there. Yeah, I think I know where you're going with this. Go so, ahead. Even though I hacked a number of branches of corals back at the age of 13, I'm making up for it over and over again. I <laughs> new corals by the thousands. Well, that's, that's exactly what came to mind. Who would have thought that all those years later, the breaking up of the coral, and I don't want to give it away too much, but would you know, lead to the Eureka mistake, actually. But uh, so, yeah, continue on. This is awesome. Yeah, I've got one more example of that. that oh, please like go you, on. This is great. Like you, um, I was enamored by the Cousteau family. And I, my dream came true um, in uh, late 1990s uh, when I was giving a tour uh, to the Philippe Cousteau uh, uh, family, Jan Cousteau, uh, Alexandra Cousteau, and young Philippe after Philippe Sr. had passed away. And I was showing them the sustainable recirculating aquaculture systems that I had developed to grow shrimp and fish and clams without having to take them from the ocean. And a new project we had started was to grow uh, marine ornamental fish for the aquarium trade 
so that they didn't have to be what I call raped from the reef. And the first fish species I happened to pick was Nemo, the clownfish, two years before the Disney movie came out. No way. And it became our model. So we were producing uh, about 20,000 clownfish per month and had to form it into a for-profit company in order to sell the offtake of the research experiment. And so we were bringing in about a quarter million dollars every month as a research institution. And I had to use that money to then research other new technologies. And I put it into trying to see if we could research growing the other invertebrates, soft corals, sponges, uh, all those gargonians, uh, and mm -hmm. hard corals also for the aquarium trade so they don't have to import them from the Pacific. And ah, we were okay. successful in building two greenhouses and in two years producing 100,000 corals for the aquarium trade. And when I showed the Cousteaus that section, they looked down on the ground and Philippe looked up to me and said, Dave, you don't get it, do you? I was so taken back and I said, what's the matter, Philippe? This are, these are corals now that don't have to come from the reef to go to- From the wild, yeah. And he got big eyes and a big smiles and he said, Dave, why aren't you doing this for the reef? And I did one of those that, oh my goodness, why didn't I think of that? And I literally left my job at the Oceanographic Institute and Philippe Cousteau and Alexander and I started the first International Coral Restoration Initiative trying to make a pathway towards people growing corals to restore the reefs. And um, so that was my real start with the Cousteau family. Wow. We're very good friends wow. with still to this day. And what year, Dr. Vaughn, was that where you kind of had that aha moment where they said, why aren't you, you know, making these for the reefs out in the wild? Was, About what year was that? It was either that? 1999 or 2000. Gotcha. So it's, so all these years since, you know, the late nineties has been time that you have spent trying to figure out how to grow and help uh, reefs grow and grow more quickly in the wild, correct? Yes. For about the last 15 years, I tried to focus on the corals, which I called the orphan corals. In Florida, we have about 28 species of corals. Two of them are the fast growing branching corals, but the majority of them, the 26 other species are the large, what we call massive reef building corals. What you may be familiar as, as a mountain coral or a boulder coral or a brain coral. And these are sure. really the ones that build the reef. The branching corals grow very quickly. And even though we were growing Pacific branching corals for the aquarium trade, um, no one was a looking after the rest of the reef building species. So since other people were starting to break or fragment like they would in, in public or private home aquariums, the one branching coral we call staghorn, which looks like a deer's antlers, which sure. naturally breaks in storms, rolls around, and if it finds a nice hard bottom and, or rock to attach to, it can expand asexually, as we call it, by fragmentation. The rest of the corals do not. In fact, they re, uh, produce by sexual reproduction, just like the birds, the bees, the flowers, and the trees. However, <laughs> we did not know corals had a sexual reproduction cycle until the mid-1980s because they spawn once a year, sometimes in the middle of the night, on one night in the summer after a full moon. And the sequence I always like to do is in Florida, it's in the summer, it's in August, it's after the full moon, it's actually two days after the full moon, it's actually two hours after two days after two, the two weeks of the full moon. So that somebody being there at 10 o'clock at night on that one day uh, may not have even noticed this upside down wondrous uh, snowfall that's moving upwards, these small little white almost snowflake looking gamete bundles that are released immediately and within 20 minutes it's over and those wow. rise to the surface burst open and release millions of eggs and billions of sperm and by chance they come together and form the first free swimming larval form 
that swims around and only one in a million makes it. Oh my gosh. But wait a minute. I'm not done yet. <laughs> one in a million makes it maybe every 25 to 100 years. What? Exactly the right oh reaction. How can that be? Oh. Well, that's because many of these big massive corals live to be hundreds of years old. So uh, a large coral the size of a small room would be 800 or 1,000 years old. And that coral head, even if it was only lucky enough once every century to reproduce, would have produced 10 more corals. And so mm -hmm. they didn't need anything faster than that until now. Now we have lost half of the world's corals and we don't want to wait a hundred years to the right chances that they may come back. And so I had gotten with a few people and said, you know, my background is in clams and oysters and fish and, and uh, shrimp. And, and we don't take a coral, a fish and break it in half and make two fish like you were <laughs> doing with staghorn coral. We look at the sexual reproduction cycle. And they said, well, no one's ever really gotten one of those young juveniles to make it in captivity. And I said, let's try it. And our laboratory, after a few years, got the what I call the first 11 test tube baby corals. And it was wow. wonderful, except that at the end of one year, they were the giant size of a head of a pin. And by year two, they had grown so much that they were equal to a small coin. And by year three, they had gotten to a larger coin. And so I got disappointed that this is way too slow. This isn't going to help. Yeah. And I took them off the upper rung of the aquarium tank and put them on the lower level of the tank and forgot about them for months. Then I went to move one of them. And just like any good coral, it grew and attached itself to the bottom of the aquarium. And I wasn't aware of it. And when I pulled to, you, to move it to a new clean tank, I heard a crack and a breakage and I had broken this coral into tiny pieces by accident. And I thought, oh, these little pieces of corals are going to die. In fact, I think my words are, they're toast. Toast. Yes, I read that. They're toast. I love that. And <laughs> Little did you know. Little did I know that just a few weeks later, that wasn't the case. They grew super fast and they got back up to the size that it took three years in just weeks. And so I... That's it. I knew amazing. that this was something, but it could be a fluke. So like any good scientist, I took a scalpel and did it again. And it worked again. And in the next few years, we tried it with every single species. And now with my colleagues, even in the, in the uh, Pacific, we've tried it with those and it works with them all. So we have something very unique that not only do we take a coral that used to be a golf ball size, and instead of waiting three years and cut it in two, we cut it every six months into 20 to 100 microfragments using a specialized saw that was meant for cutting coral jewelry. So we can use this diamond blade saw that jewelers would use to cut them as small as one polyp oh, wow. and get hundreds of pieces. And each piece is now stimulated for some reason to grow many times faster. And the reason they may be growing many times faster is because they are trying to heal over and do some healing response. For instance, I always tell people that your skin does not grow very fast, right? Unless you fall and take a chunk out of your skin like mm -hmm. I used to learning how to ride a bicycle. Didn't Three we all? Of us had yeah. that, that scab on the end of our elbow or our knee and what happens to your skin within weeks something stimulates it to heal over fast and you have new skin in days instead of not growing very fast at all we think it's a healing mm -hmm. response by the corals we're now able to take advantage of that and then we found something even more unique if that wasn't crazy enough and a game changer for corals that now we can grow many corals very fast what happened is we were growing corals faster than we could have space or get new tanks to put them in. It took us six years to grow our first 600 corals uh, back in early 2000s. 
but now we can grow 600 to 1,000 or cut them in just one afternoon. So oh every day goodness. we were producing as much as we produced in six years and we were running out of tank space. And usually we would plant, put the corals in a tank a good distance away from each other because corals like to fight. And so what happened is we had to put them close together until we could get another tank up. But in the meantime, they were growing super fast. And what happened is we found out when they touch each other, they weren't fighting. In fact, they fused and grew back together because they were the same clone from the same, same DNA. So at BSS, we took our skin from our right arm and we had a burn on our left and the doctor transplanted it and your skin over there accepted it to grow together. And so That's we're amazing. now able to refuse or sometimes what I call reskinning uh, a dead coral skeleton back into a new coral skeleton. We can take something the size of a basketball and we can put 20 pieces of the same clone and get it to look like almost a large pizza pie of a pepperoni. And the pepperonis, the corals grow back to <laughs> each other, touch each other and like a hair transplant grow back together. And so in as little as two years, we've reformed a new coral head with new tissue on top of an old skeleton that would have been 25 to 100 years old. And this year on my birthday, some of the corals that I planted two to five years ago, not only got to the size of a 100 year old coral, but they started acting like an adult coral. They actually spawned reproduced sexually that was documented. Wow. That's something that usually doesn't do that till they're many decades old. And so now we can not only grow corals to the size of a mature one, but they're acting reproductively successfully. And this is a game changer for the coral reefs of the world. It's hope that we were hoping for. Gosh, that is, that is so, so exciting. I saw a video out on your site, I believe it was, when I was doing some research for this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and you had you showed some underwater footage of uh, some coral and, and then you showed five years later of that same area and the difference was breathtaking, just amazing what, what you're doing. And if we could take a step back, Dr. Vaughn, and let our listeners know why this is so important. Can you talk about the levels of oxygen that these reefs provide to our planet and talk about how they provide protection for our coastal communities, um, all of those things which make this planet-saving and, like you said, game-changing uh, um, science? Well, I get a lot of people that ask me the, the same or similar questions. They usually is, uh, uh, why are corals even important? Why, why should we even worry about them? And by the way, what is a coral? And um, I usually tell them first, what is a coral? And I said, well, what do you think a coral is? And they say, I don't know, is it a plant? Is it an animal? Is it a microbe? Is it a rock? And I say, yes, 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 and yes. It's all four of those living as one. It's such a unique organism that's not found on this planet that is an animal that has a algal plant that lives inside it that utilizes the sunlight and gives it to the coral that also gives some of it to microbes, a bacterial community that lives on the outside mucus, just as we have microbes on our inside gut that keeps us healthy. A coral has the microbes on their outside. And those microbes actually prevent diseases by producing naturally occurring antibiotics. It's their immune system. When, is that right? When corals bleach, it's because the temperature is very high and the coral itself starts to get lethargic. But the algae that loves high temperature, loves high sunlight, starts to produce more oxygen. We get our oxygen, 60% to 70% of our oxygen from the ocean, not from the land. And corals are one part, along with seagrasses, seaweeds, and phytoplankton that produce that oxygen. 
But if the algae can't get its oxygen producing algae out of its inside of its system, it literally will get killed by oxygen poisoning and the extra, extra oxidases that will build up without them being able to get rid of it. So instead of it dying at the last minute, it somehow tells the algae to get out. You're killing me here. <laughs> hmm. Well, it doesn't actually say that. Just <laughs> but that <laughs> thanks for the clarification somehow. And so they expel the colored algae, and they the animal is actually clear. And with no algae inside it, you actually see through the clear animal, and you see the brand new white rock skeleton calcium carbonate that it produces. And it looks white and it's called bleaching. And so bleaching with corals is because of the climate change high temperatures that we're getting, which used to happen maybe once a century and corals had enough time to grow back. Now we're having it almost every single year. The last three decades, we were having three global bleaching you know, events per decade and now locally, most places get it almost every single year. So many of our corals have lost. We've lost half of our corals, but the corals that survive that are resistant to today's conditions of high temperatures. We just need to make more of those. If a disease went through a forest and killed, let's say half of the, half of the chestnut trees, but the other half were resistant, the other half of them would start to drop uh, chestnuts and slowly build back a resistant population. We can't wait a hundred years, but we can take clippings or cutting or fragments and we can make the newer resistant naturally selected by today's conditions be more of what the reef is made up of. And so the reef is important in many ways. If you've not been mm -hmm. able to see at least on TV, but have had the luxury of swimming in a reef, it's just a wonderful natural system of fish and colors. And I tell people it's not necessarily just, it's a pretty reef, but reefs are less than 1% of the world's uh, surface area. But they're responsible for 25 to 40% of the world's fisheries. Think of the bottom of the ocean like a desert. But if you had an oasis and a watering hole, that's where all the animals would be. And it's the same thing underwater with the reef. And so it's not just the 25 species of corals that I'm worried about in the Florida Keys. I'm worried about the 200 species of fish and the 2000 species of invertebrate that require to have a living corals ecosystem for ecosystem. them to exist as well. Yeah, that really fascinated me. Some of the research that you are doing where there were literally tanks in your lab where the temperature would be slightly different, you know, higher or lower in each tank. So you could learn as our ocean temperatures continue to rise over the coming decades, what species of coral do the best under those circumstances. And, and you said something that I thought was very insightful, something along the lines of that, unfortunately it's been advances in technology that have caused pollution around the world that have caused you know the climate change and our ocean temperatures to rise so it's technology that kind of got us in this place but it was fascinating to see that you're using science and technology to get us out of this mess i just thought that was a really really cool kind of a, a you know point that you were making that it's innovation that's going to save our planet now are you are you have you made some progress in the last few years where you have a pretty good understanding now of what coral is doing the best, that you have a large enough sample size of what's thriving um, and will continue to thrive? Sure. Um, you're correct. We set up what a number of research institutes are setting up some sort of uh, ocean simulator so we can, in uh, tanks, simulate one degree rise in temperature or one-tenth of a part of pH change lower, or excess nutrients in the water, or whatever parameter we think these things are gonna be dealt with in the next decades or century. So we can get an idea, are we gonna have corals alive or not? And uh, I was actually very 
worried that running this experiment could be very tearful, that I might find that a third of the corals may make it, a few are going to be devastated, and a few of them are going to go extinct. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure I was ready to be the person who knew too much of seeing what oh. could happen. However, I was very pleased to see that with almost almost every species, there are different genetic strains that do have the attributes of being resistant to future conditions. So not all strains are going to make it. For instance, we do know that dogs are really one species, but we have a number of strains of dogs that look as different from a Chihuahua to an Alaskan Husky. But we wouldn't put an Alaskan Husky in the desert to survive, and we wouldn't put a Chihuahua in the Arctic to survive. So each area should be looking at whatever the, 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 survive, the natural selection that already has taken place and trying to make more of those. Now we could do something a little bit beyond that. And I'm not talking about jockeying genes from a caterpillar or a jellyfish that could make it survive in different conditions. But people thought that it took a hundred years for a coral to go through a life cycle to maybe select the next generation, which is why geneticists started working with something that has a hundred day cycle of a green pea, or they looked at a Drosophila fly, a fruit fly that has a two week life cycle. So they could every week do an experiment of crossing one with another and seeing what it does. Sure. And, um, Look what we've done with just one species of dog in just in just the new types in the past 10 years that are out there. Uh, we could do the same thing with taking two different genetic strains of the same natural species that exist. But let's say I have, for instance, a genotype or strain, as we call them, one that can tolerate high temperatures and doesn't bleach. But another one uh, bleaches, but it can tolerate very low pH of the acid conditions that we think the oceans are going to be in. Ah. We take those two, and let's say we found one this big and one this big. We use microfragmentation to make 100 pieces. We take those 100 pieces and we put them on a basketball-sized colony. And in two years, we get it to fuse to look like a 25-year-old. And by year three, they start to spawn. We collect the eggs from one and the sperm from the other, and we get a thousand offspring. Well, those thousand offspring are going to have probably 25% of that population is going to have the best from mom and the best from dad. <laughs> now, 25% are going to have maybe the worst from mom and the worst from dad. And some of <laughs> you who have brothers and sisters out there have, can attest to. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is, uh, we have the power to make uh, labradoodle coral reefs. Is that what I'm hearing here? <laughs> I, I think you can, you can say that in a nicer way that doesn't sound like we're manipulating Mother Nature, is we can follow and select what Mother Nature has told us are good survival conditions, and we can help them grow faster and put them in the same kennel <laughs> together. That, that, yeah. ah, that is so cool. Well, I, I have to admit, I did... And, and Aaron can vouch for this. Uh, we did have a Chihuahua years ago that, uh, that at times we would have loved to seen how she survived in the Arctic, by the way, when you told that story. Oh, Dad, don't say so, that. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right. I don't need to get letters from PETA now. We're, we're animal lovers. She was a sweetheart. But you know how Chihuahuas are. I, I she so, could be a little so diva. It's a new age, and I like to kid and say we could have in the – lifespan of a graduate student can actually select an entire generation of new attributes from new strains of a new coral. And I don't mean the lifespan of a graduate student. I mean the time that a yeah. graduate student, <laughs> a master's or a PhD degree can be the full life cycle of a coral of, of helping mother nature select things that are gonna be able to be forecasted as the right attributes. So tell me, Dr. Vaughn, so here you're working, you know, kind of in uh, your own world for weeks and months and years with your team down in Florida. And all of a sudden you have this, you know, the the Eureka mistake and 
And how did it finally, you know, start to leak out and you let the scientific community, it, it must have just been like a, an avalanche. I mean, was it, uh, was it a, a New York Times story that broke this or what was it that kind of, uh, you know, set the, the champagne cork uh, flying, so to speak? Well, for me, it was that eureka moment with that being called uh, by the New York Times article. As many people as a scientist would not like to be called you know, of something of known as a mistake. <laughs> uh, if you make the front page of the science section of the New York Times, they can call it whatever they like. Absolutely. Uh, however, I thought it was going to be earth shattering uh, with the rest of the coral community. And it did not go that fast. Um, the, really? It fell on a lot of people that said, wrote me letters and said, Dr. Vaughn, didn't you see my publication of 20 years ago where I say that the brain coral grows only one millimeter a month or one millimeter at the of a year? How can you say that you're growing something, you know, to the size of a quarter meter in just a few years? Uh, what are you thinking? Um, and I, I'd say, come visit, come see it in person. And everybody that would actually come see it was a believer. So it was one of wow. those that took a while uh, to get going. And again, almost everybody else was taking the easy way of using just the staghorn coral underwater, breaking it and making it. And so one of the problems was, is that we were doing this in a oceanographic research institution in what later became a multi-million dollar laboratory to do more research on corals. And I started opening up to different countries to come visit me. We'll have a one week hands-on training workshop with one to two dozen people. And we'll go through all the steps that you need to learn of how to do this yourself. I wanna expand <laughs> this. I wanna teach people all over the world how this is done. And they would mm -hmm. come and they'd learn how to do it. And I thought I was doing a good job until finally I asked people later and I said, so what are you doing now? It says, well, it was wonderful, Doc, but, you know, we looked at that $7 million lab and went back to our country and said, you know, we can't do this. We don't have the money, uh, regretfully. Really? And so um, I've done two things since I retired from Moat Marine Lab. One is to start our own foundation, Plant a Million Corals, to spread this word internationally. And the other is to develop an inexpensive, transportable coral nursery in a box. And so we used a standard modular shipping container. And I did the kind of experience work of designing the pumps, the pipes, the filters, the, uh, the, the tanks, and built it into a transportable container, which the tanks can come outside and within six hours completely be dismantled, put inside the container, and shipped to another country or island nation. And then within uh, one day, open the tank container with the community and teach them how to put it back together, sort of plug play, wow. with by day two be pumping water to a life, life support system, and by day three be cutting corals and showing them how it's done. And the first container was supposed to go to the Nature Conservancy in the island of Grenada in March. And you can guess what happened in March. Our pandemic basically oh. shut down transportation of both material oh, people to other countries. Uh, they called me and they said, you'll have to stop. Don't send it. Uh, we're on lockdown. And we don't think you can come till the first of the year. And I thought, first of the year, that's too far. Let's wait a little bit and see what happens. And now I'm not even sure if the first of the year I'll be able to follow this container down and do a hands-on community program uh, training. And so in the meantime, wow. um, we've been designing the next phase of one, which is a smaller container producing twice as much coral. And uh, since I had it stored in an area that didn't have any electricity, uh, I went ahead and got solar panels to actually power the saltwater pumps to run it. And I'm gonna make the next version fully solar powered so it can go to any place off the grid and be a non-costing non utilities for running a coral nursery. And hopefully we'll be able to ship these things soon, or I'm going to be teaching people by Zoom how to do it. 
Isn't that amazing that, uh, wow, the pandemic, you know, I would think that this is one type of work that continue can continue to go on even during a pandemic. But to your point, that involves you still got to travel. You've still got to be, you know, uh, exposed and around other people to train them. And but I love what you're doing. So it was already pretty much turnkey. And when do you expect to have it turnkey and also completely solar operated? Well, we're hoping to to ship this container really by the first of the year. And hopefully by the first of the year, we'll be starting. We'll have another uh, system starting to be developed. Uh, but the solar uh, off-grid will probably take uh, six months into 2021 in order to be ready for our beta version to, to be sent somewhere. Awesome. That's amazing. Didi, so tell us a little, about, a little bit about yourself. Were you bitten at a young age like your father? Yeah, I um, I started at a real young age. I mean, I, I did have a little bit of a, you know, the pump was already primed for my, my love of the ocean and science. Um, I grew up in South Florida, right on the river. But uh, when all my other friends were going to soccer practice, I was seine netting the river and then identifying what I found. So wow. <laughs> my, my childhood was a little... A little different. I wouldn't have traded it for anything, but uh, the the pump was a little primed. Um, I started having a heavy, heavy interest in science and particularly marine biology, and then uh, got to college and realized I knew most of the scientists, and they were already doing good work. <laughs> so, uh, but there was kind of a disconnect between the good work that scientists were doing and the general public. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of switched my venue to um, getting the information out there and learning how to get the people that really could take that next step with with research and science and technology. Mm -hmm. Wow. Very cool. Erin, you have anything awesome. you want to add to that? Well, I just want to ask Dr. Vaughn, I know that you've been a lifelong scuba diver and I'm a big ocean lover myself, but I'm terrified to try it. But I was just curious. What changes have you discovered in the ocean? Um, what changes have you witnessed over time? Oh, that's a very good question because um, I uh, was lucky enough to dive in the 60s and the 70s when literally I would complain that with so much elkhorn and staghorn coral that I couldn't get to the middle of the reef very easily. Uh, to see something interesting like a brain coral because there was so much of it there to get scratched on and now i have those are the first two corals that have been listed as threatened on the endangered species list for corals and so i have to show somebody that just learned how to snorkel or dive and take them to an area where i can show them where i know where there still is a staghorn or an elkhorn coral mostly in the places we've planted and so it is a different world today and I really have to uh, both apologize to the next generation of what we've done, but it's the next generation like yourself and Didi that are ones that are mm -hmm. going to uh, be able to see how to do this. They're both helping non-for-profits. They're both knowing that it, we have to train the community and we have to train others. We can't do this ourselves and that there is hope. Yeah. I once had a friend that said hope in really is help on planet earth h-o-p-e and ah, i like that and this gives hope so many people today when they see a picture that i show them of what coral was in the 1970s and if they were the first time diver and they go out and they say oh i see some beautiful color fish and some sea fans and gorgonians and i'm crying because it's not 80 percent coral it's eight percent coral and so there is this idea that we need to help, but you need the hope of having something where you know it can make a difference. And I've seen the hope of young people decline because they think the challenge is too big and too large. Mm -hmm. We have climate change, it's global. Every day I look at the news and something else, we're losing the polar bears, we're losing the corals, we're losing this, we're losing that. How are we gonna cope yeah. with I want to hide inside my house and, and do something else. Well, let me tell you something. I lived during the time where we had 
uh, literally acid rain in the Midwest. We had uh, power plants that used low grade coal that still had high sulfur content and they had no filters on their smokestacks and they were putting out sulfur which became hydrogen sulfide acid and sulfuric acid and it rained down on all the freshwater lakes in the Midwest. They were losing the frogs, the salamanders and then the fish and people said, we're losing this. And everybody said, half the world was denial that it was even happening. Does that sound familiar? Very familiar, unfortunately. <laughs> and they said, there's nothing we can do about it. It's rain coming from clouds on the atmosphere. But within 10 years, we forced them to use better quality fuels. We forced them to put smokestacks on their, on their uh, effluent and, and plumes. And you don't even know, some people don't even know about acid rain anymore because it was solved in our lifetime. And in our lifetime, we saw the, the destruction and the big change in the ozone layer. The ozone layer, the space out on our planet. And yet we're making steps to solve that. So I believe and truly believe we can make those steps to solve climate change, which will also solve the problems of our oceans if we all work together. So I believe there is hope. And I'm hoping that the poor plight of both the polar bear, which has brought it to light with the Arctic, and the corals, which has brought it to life in the tropics, will maybe be the poster child. And I don't know if we can solve the problem with the polar bear, but we can solve the problem with the corals. And they can say, hey, we're growing underwater forests like we're growing rainforests. We're replanting corals like we re can replant trees after fires. And maybe we shouldn't start those fires and change the climate that's drying them out so we're having so many. And maybe we will all open up to, to this. So I'm hoping this is our gleamer and gl gleam and glimmer of hope that people can tie onto it. And it, it, it'll start you know, basically a movement. And, and that's what this is. This is the movement of hope that we can change this world. We just don't have to be so greedy about exploiting our natural resources as fast as we can because we deserve it. Amen. Absolutely. To that. <laughs> what can, having heard that, and I'll throw that this out to you, Didi, what can the average person out there that's listening to this podcast, what can they do in their daily lives to help save the reefs, help save our planet, as well as I'm assuming they can go to your website, plantamillioncorals.org, and they can make donations there, I'm assuming. But, yes. uh, but Didi, any thoughts on that? What can we do to help? Well, one, one thing I, I've heard, you know, um, when I was a kid, the big thing was recycling. And so many families turned recycling into a, into a habit because their, their kids came home and said, Mom, you've You've got to recycle that. We've got to recycle our cans, our plastic, our glass. And the biggest thing that anybody can do from anywhere, and it costs absolutely nothing, is to talk about it. You know, learn, learn about our organization, other organizations doing something similar, and, and tell people, you know, the, 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 mm -hmm. the corals need our help. It's not just that the corals are dying, but it's that the corals need our help and we can make a difference. Um, like, like my dad said, so many people are getting this fatigue that they feel yeah. like it's an unsurmountable goal to solve mm -hmm. any of these problems. And everybody's, I, I feel that as well, but we've, one of the great things about what we're doing is it's a solution. It's, it's part of the movement to create um, a better world, not just getting upset about what's happening and what's happened. Um, you know, people mm -hmm. that want to want to donate financially are, are amazing, but the first step is to learn more and to get five other people to learn more. And mm -hmm. that can really create this tidal wave of support for both our organization and other organizations doing similar work. I love it. Oh, yeah. Dr. Vaughn, anything to add to that? Well, um, I just want to make sure that uh, ev everybody realizes uh, that form, as Didi said, is, is hope, is that uh, we can do something and we can do 
uh, a little bit of everything. And you're correct that, you know, you can't solve the world's problems by recycling one can aluminum can. But if you start recycling every one of your aluminum cans and you tell pe other people to do so and they tell other people to do so, before you know it, we're not driving, you know, uh, six miles per gallon automobiles. We're my driving at 25 miles. Well, you, you just doubled the fuel efficiency or a hybrid at 30 miles per gallon or an electric car and electrics and solar things is gonna what burn, you know, basically builds our economy. It's the new technology. Let's not be back in the Flintstone trying to sell, you know, buggy whips and, and coal and, and campfire. Clean, beautiful coal. Clean, beautiful coal, as our president says. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, back in the day, it was, you know, you know, invest in plastics. Now we know that you have to watch the plastics. It has mm -hmm. to be uh, turned into something else. And I'm sure we will start to learn better ways of taking our plastic waste and making something good out of them or better out of them before they become microplastics or float in the oceans. And I'm sure we're going to learn some new technology. So I want everybody to know there's hope. That's awesome. And speaking of the plastics real quick, what were your thoughts on, I, I know that lots of sea turtles and fish were getting caught up on the little uh, plastic things that hold six packs together of, of sodas and beer. And so I've heard of companies that are actually making not only biodegradable, but actually edible to fish that if these end up in the ocean, that uh, is, is that true? And is it, uh, is, is this a good thing? Does it actually work? Or are we being fed a bill of lies? Cause I don't necessarily trust everything I hear these days. So yeah, there's all good technologies being made as alternatives to plastics and, and either, you know, versions of them that, that biodegrade faster or alternatives that, that utilize more natural uh, basis of it. There's a couple of people that are using seaweed production to make a product that, that actually, you know, works very well on that. And so mm -hmm. there's new technologies, new things happening, you know, solar energy, electric cars oh my goodness what what an age to be living in it's opportunities are great don't go down the bad hole of saying everything is bad and and one thing you know um everybody can make one small change a week that's something that we've started doing in our household is every week we're going to change over whether that's to reusable more reusable products um silicone straws things that can be make small changes that you know not every every household can afford to completely change over their power grid to solar but mm -hmm. you can ha assign one person in your family to make sure all the lights are off before you go to bed um, and then next week make a commitment to use less paper towels and use more towels that can be washed in your in your washing machine that way you're mm -hmm. creating less paper products it's it's something that small these small steps that people can make are are re really where the major changes are going yeah. to happen wow well you two have been amazing we cannot thank you enough for for your time here we know you're both very very busy in like you said a world that we're living in right now with so much divisiveness and a lot of negativity in the world you guys really are I can't think of anything more noble than than improving the beauty of our reefs, uh, helping improving our, our ecosystem for our fish, and giving us more oxygen to breathe to help make our planet sustainable. I can think of nothing more noble than that. You guys really are making the world a better place. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. We'll be back in touch. We'd like to keep in touch with you guys yeah. over the next couple of years. Any new developments, let us know. Do you have anything else to add here before you go? No, just uh, keep up a clear mind. As Diddy says, uh, you know, it's sometimes the things you purchase. Use your purchasing power to change the products and the way products are sold or wrapped or shipped, and then they will change immediately. Yeah, that's important. Well said. Totally agree. Dr. David Vaughn and Didi Vaughn, thank you so much. Thanks so really much. Really appreciate thank your you. time. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and uh, we will be in touch. Thank you. Take care. 
special thanks to our guests, Dr. David Vaughn and Didi Vaughn. Thanks to our producer and editor, Noah Existe. Our music was written and performed by Nadie Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please subscribe and leave us a comment. Go out and give a smile to a stranger and you're already making the world a better place. Make the world.